Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, founders and CEOs that are leading the health tech revolution, not just in the UK, but beyond. As regular listeners know, I am a founder and CEO of a health tech company myself called PopDoc, which is trying to make blood testing easier by moving it onto a smartphone. I mention that because it shows how passionate I am about the people and the companies that are changing the world. That's why we do this show. Um, Before we get into the show, just a couple of bits of business at the top of the hour. Um, The first is that it would be great if you could all follow the show on the socials, which is at Health Tech Hour. You can also follow me on Twitter, which is at Steve Roost CEO. And please follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio to stay on top of all of the great content that we have coming up on the show. There's a ton of presenters doing all kinds of really interesting shows. So please do check that out. So um, second piece is I just want to say that um, last thank to thank everyone for listening to last week's show with Ali Parza, the CEO and founder of um, Babylon. It was an incredible show. Such a humble person, such a humble guy. Um, first time we've had an actual billionaire on the show. So it was amazing to see how humble he was about his own journey and how um, free he was in the advice to other entrepreneurs and other people in the space. It really is a great show. It's on Spotify right now. So if you look for Health Tech Hour on Spotify, you can find it or Google or Acast or Audible. Um, yeah. And then we are this week, we're continuing our focus on heart health because obviously February is Healthy Heart Month. Two weeks ago, we had the CEO of Heart UK on, Jules Payne. Uh, and today you could say that we, we've we gone across the pond to the US to basically find her counterpart, um, who is Selena Gores. Now, Selena is the CEO of Women Heart, which is the single, or the, the first and only heart disease charity focused on women and their heart disease, not just their heart disease specifically, but also their journey after heart disease. Um, Selena has had an incredible career working at some of the most influential and impactful health and humanitarian organizations, including the UN, the Global Alliance for Chronic Diseases, and now Women Heart. And it's very exciting to have Selena on the show, calling directly from the USA. How are you, Selena? Doing well, Steve. So nice to be with you today. And exactly where are you calling from today? Uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. There we go. Look at this. We're global. I'm I'm actually in the French Alps. I literally... Um, I had a huge panic, I must confess, because um, I had to text our show producer, actually, because I, I, I was very, very close to actually being very late for the show. But it turns out I could ski faster than I thought. So here I am. I can relate. I can relate. Good. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. I know that we did our pre-show production call and there's a whole bunch of interesting um, content and interesting angles that I hadn't really even sort of thought about before myself so I'm I'm sure that it's going to be very exciting for the listeners just to kind of get some sense 
Um, the way that we do the show generally is in three parts. It's sort of like an origins part. Then there's a middle part where we talk about all of the amazing things that you're doing. And then the final bit, we try and talk a bit more broadly about maybe advice for people who are listening, either personal who might be, for example, in their own heart journey, which is I know the way that you, you, that you at Women Heart refer to it as someone's heart journey, which I think is a really apt kind of phrase because um, it is a journey or, or more broadly you know people particularly who are either following your footsteps or thinking about following your footsteps down the sort of humanitarian um international development sort of type pathway not non, non-profit pathway which i think is it's a hard one to tread you know that's that, that, that's a difficult path to follow so any advice that we can get onto there um but why don't we why don't we start with with that and so because I, you know, I've, I've read your your bio and we talked, and it, it really is an incredible career. So, just at what point did you did you realize that, that that was the journey that you wanted to to go along? You know, this sort of humanitarian type of journey. How how did that happen? Talk, talk us through it. Yeah, it's a it's a good question, Stephen. I've never actually been asked it in quite that way before. So, I my family and I we emigrated to the United States from the Philippines when I was six years old. Okay, and back then. Those trips were one way. That wasn't a, you know, let's travel the world. But that was sort of a journey in and of itself. It took weeks because, you know, whatever. We had different stages. Um, and when, when we got here, my parents were obsessed with education. So that's, you know, we, my sisters and I, we really focused squarely on that. But then the, really the, the big event that changed the trajectory of our family was my mom she passed away when, when I was 18, she was 39. And basically that at that point, I think my sisters and I, without really talking about it, all committed ourselves to having less families lose their mothers early. Um, So I work in heart disease. My sister works in cancer and another sister works in HIV and AIDS. So, you know, all different areas, obviously of health, but really with the aim to improving the quality of life for, for people who are suffering with diseases. And, you know, from there, it really sort of took off because I also have this itch to see the world and get to know beyond kind of the tourist traps of various places and humanitarian work sort of jive with both my professional interests and my, my personal sort of curiosity about the world. So I'm going on 70 countries in terms of where I've been in the world. Um, Wow. That's a lot of countries. And, and, you know, Steve, half of that is, is from work. So I have been really lucky, I think, to fall into um, a line of work that enables me to not just, travel but to really understand how people live in different parts of the world and so I think what drives me and what what sort of uh, pushes me to continue in this work is a is just sort of this endless thirst for understanding about how various people not just live but thrive and thrive with disease and I sort of came to Women Heart after spending eight years in London running the Global Alliance for Chronic Diseases, because heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women in the U.S. and it's true for most countries U- in yeah, the not, world. Not just the U.S. I think yeah. it's, it's. I mean, it's got to be almost global, probably. I don't know. It'll be diff- there'll be a bit of depends how you count it, but yeah, depends how I mean, you count it. Yeah, but but I think the point is that 
Heart disease is fascinating to me because not only does it impact so many people, but there's a lot we can do about it. It's not something that is not a rare disease with no treatment. It is something that we all not only live with as a society, but there are lots of things we can do to mitigate the the negative impacts of of the disease. And in fact, Thrive, I said, you know, as you go through the heart journey, it's it's really possible to, to live your best life. So yeah. um, that's what we're, what we're all about at Women Heart. And, you know, I really got here through, as you say, sort of a meandering route through and spent a couple of years in Angola, spent two, two different stints at the UN in, in New York City. And, you know, probably my, my favorite time of my career until, until Women Heart was my eight years in London running the Global mm-hmm. Alliance for Chronic Diseases. Well, I mean, obviously, London being it's close to my heart, you know, so we, we'll come to that. But I, one of the questions I want to ask, so I live in Geneva, um, and obviously the UN is, you know, quite a big employer in Geneva. And just yeah. one of the questions I've, I, I've, I've always been interested in is, what is it like working for the UN? I obviously, I imagine it must be quite different depending upon what you do. And I don't know how many, probably tens of thousands of people are probably employed by them, either directly or indirectly. But w- what was that experience like? Because you said you had two stints. Yeah. I know that you ended up going to Angola. Which mm-hmm. one of the seventy countries? So, like, what, what what were you doing, and what was it like? Yeah, so I'll answer the the question about what what's it like first. So, the the UN has about a million employees around the world. Oh wow, that's um, quite so big. it's a it's pretty massive employer. Um, and you know, when I was thirteen, we went to the UN building in New York City, and I said, "That is my dream. I want to oh, work wow. for the UN. That is that is my dream." And so, when I finished my stint in Angola. It was sort of weird to be on the other side of your dream, you know, sort of like coming down the mountain from Everest, sort of like, mm-hmm. okay, what do I do yeah. now? You know, I've achieved yeah. my big goal. And what do I do now? And actually, my experience with the UN, which was amazing, it was varied, it, you know, it, the UN, obviously, in many countries sort of opens doors for you with really important decision makers. All of that, I think, is, is part of the, the UN experience. But, you know, as as with any organization that employs a million people, it's a it's a pretty deep bureaucracy. So you have to be also really adept at navigating bureaucracy and you you have to sort of like it and be want to be a part of it. Um, And I think I, I, I just sort of have this edge in me that has pushed me towards what I have been doing for the last sort of three, three jobs, three roles which is running nonprofits that are kind of scrappy and small with ridiculously and impossibly large mandates. Um, and, you know, the, the confidence that I so, sort of built up in order to do that came from my experience at the UN, speaking to heads of, of you know, agencies, um, you know, speaking to ministers of, of health and, and other high-ranking officials in, in country, just bit by virtue of you know, having the UN badge. Um, so that has really served me well to, to do the work that I've been doing over the last several years. And so let's go back, because I think that's a really interesting way of phrasing it. So like you, you see a lot of sports people and stuff where like, you know, they win the championship or they become heavyweight champion of the world. And like, you're like, oh, okay. Well then like, what? What you know, now? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a really, I don't, I'm again, I don't know if you're a boxing fan, but there, there's a, a British boxer called Tyson Fury who, um, beat Vladimir Klitschko one was one of the belts or like four out of five of the belts whatever it is and then um just went completely off the rails because it was like I've been working towards this for my entire life and now yeah. I have it and then 
what what happens now so um how did you like navigate that that process and then because I'm guessing that sort of is where that led you to the non-profit sort of exactly yeah so my version of off the rails Steve was I went to India (laughs) and I spent a month on an ashram oh uh, cool trained to be a yoga teacher and really kind of letting nature talk to me in a way so like tell me you know what it is like I, I I wanted to get some clarity I wanted to kind of um quiet my brain and and sort of see see what came up and through that process you know I I kind of distill the things that I really love about my work. Uh, and, and part of that is, is being innovative in, in sort of the organizational space. You know, not, not, I'm not a creative as far as an artist, but I'm, I'm a creative as far as like being resourceful and thinking about how you solve a problem in a different way yeah. and how you attack it in, in a way that maybe others haven't thought about you- before. Do you, do you think that that's because that, a lot of what you said, and this is the same on the production call, the kind of feeling I got from that from from speaking to you was like, I love your mug, by the way. Keep calm and carry on back to the British roots. Sorry for everyone listening on the radio, but <laughs> that's a, you'll have to watch the YouTube to get that one. Um, the um, was that you're almost some of the things you say are almost like I would attribute to almost like an entrepreneurial mindset. You know, the scrappiness so. and the problem yeah. solving and the go forward and the you know, the, the slight rough, you know, like abrasiveness with the concept yeah, of large yeah. scale bureaucracy. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, and I think it, it comes from my immigrant roots. And so okay. now today we talk about scrappiness in terms of we, we have the context of non of, of startups and entrepreneurship. But in the 70s, I'm, I'm dating myself now, but in the 70s, that we, you know, there was no yeah. such concept of, you yeah. know, let's, let's build a startup in, in, you know, Silicon Valley, right? That didn't right. exist in the 70s. So I sort of, it, it, it makes sense why so many folks in the startup world have the immigrant experience or come yeah. from that, because there is, there is really this, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes, right? Yeah. That attitude of we're going to do whatever it takes, and I am willing to suffer for it. I'm willing yeah. to sacrifice for it for my, myself and my family, that I think builds this ability to look at things in a different way. Yeah. And to well, see I think, things sort of outside yeah. of the bounds of comfort. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, cause I think it's also depends on like what your baseline is for discomfort as well. Right. Like, you know, yeah. people's bait, well, I don't want to get into, you know, specifically like this or that, but like people's baseline for discomfort is very different. Right. So very like, di- yes. You know, if, if you've grown up in a particular way in a particular place, then there then might be, you know, that, you know, that, that there's a likelihood that, that, that you might have a different baseline to someone that's, that's grown up. And it's not to say it's like exclusive, right? You don't have to have had a tough upbringing in order to be a successful entrepreneur, but it just so happens that a lot of people with tough upbringings became successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think that's right. No, I think that's right. And, and you know, the other thing I'll add to the mix of, of sort of this, this mindset of being resourceful and scrappy is I've, I really love being in the outdoors. And I can spend days and days and days camping and climbing and being outside. And that also teaches you to be pretty scrappy and and resourceful and minimal. Um, So that, you know, so if I say to myself, you know what, I can live out of my tent for weeks on, on end, then there's, there's sort of, my bottom is pretty far down there. Right. And I'm willing to do a lot to get something done that's really important to me, that really matters for me, but not just me, but for a lot of other people. Um, 
And when you said when you were a kid that you wanted to work at the UN, what was the reaction from your you know, family? Is that Was that an approved pathway? That was a good thing? Or that was like, no, a, oh, I don't yeah, know. It's a, it's a great question because the person that brought us there was my auntie who worked at the UN. And so oh, cool. in, a okay. way, <laughs> in a way, you know, we talk about the UN as sort of our family business because I've got aunts and uncles and cousins and I've oh, got wow. two cousins right now who live in Geneva and are working at, oh, at, yeah? at the UN. So yeah, oh, nice. it's a big, it's, you know, it's, it's, and, it- and I think that really allows us as a family to see ourselves as being global. We've got family all around the world right. doing all kinds of crazy things like, you know, trying to solve uh, the um, refugee problem in, in, in Jordan, y- you know, right. I mean, sort of, Everywhere. Doing really interesting. Yeah. I tell you what, the world's got a lot of nails and not enough hammers. That's what I say. So um, the um, so is it a bit, does the UN kind of trend that way? Like people, it becomes a bit of a family pathway or were you sort of unique? Because that, because I could see with it, 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 it uh, I could see it becoming something that becomes a bit of a family trade. I could see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we weren't the, we're certainly not the only family that have, you know, a few family members kind of working in, in the UN system. Uh, so I, I would say it's not uncommon, um, but I think you have to really love, you know, like being in the military or being, being right. in the foreign service, you really have to love picking up, picking up and moving to the next location. Yeah, you've got it. You're, so it's like an all in thing. It's an all in thing. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. Yep. Right. right. And, and the kids are sort of swept into that as well. So, <laughs> you know, it is, it, we, it, I mean, I, I happen to love it, but then my, I have another sister who doesn't travel a whole lot. You right. know, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a preference thing too. So, so you get, you're at the mountain of Everest, you, you know, you're working yeah. at the UN, which is the dream of dreams. Yeah. How, how of all the nonprofits, right. Of which there are quite a few, how did, where, you know, why did the pathway take you to, was it chronic diseases first or was it heart yes, health first? Chronic, so chronic diseases. diseases first. So how, how yeah. did that, how did that, why that? Why not yeah. anything else? The great question. So um, my work at the, in Angola was fo- focused on HIV and AIDS. And when you, and if you've been working in global health in the, in the decades that I was working in global health, that's what you were working on. You, you know, global health that was synonymous with HIV and AIDS. That's where all right. the money was. That's what all the governments were doing. And that's what you were there to help them do. Yeah. Um, and I moved back to, to New York City, uh, actually, to, to run a, a different organization focused on corporate responsibility. And there was a, a, a high level meeting at the UN in New York on non-communicable diseases or, or chronic yeah. diseases. And that was the first conference that really shifted the attention or the direction of global health away from HIV and AIDS to talk more about cardiovascular disease and diabetes and the developing right. world. Right? Right. So now that these countries are starting to, to be a little bit better off economically, you see the rise in the chronic diseases. R- rapid consumerization, right. poor All diet. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. And so I thought, you know what, I need to get on that bandwagon. Otherwise I'll be, if I'm left behind in the HIV space, right. you know, I'll be far behind. That's, and, you're, well, that's what you'll be. You'll just be in that. It's hard to exactly. move out of it after but a time. pigeonholed if you don't move, sort of yeah. move with the times. Uh, yeah. And so this organization, the GACD, was sitting in London with a really interesting role to, to head it up, to start it up, you know, right. as, as an entrepreneur. And uh, I came across and, and loved every minute of, of the development and the, the growth of that organization. Okay. 
Well, we're going to get into that, but then we're going to move in the next section. We'll move on to, I want to talk all about what Women Heart's doing. So um, we're going to break for some commercials now. And we'll be back in two minutes with Selena Gore, the CEO of Women Heart. Thank you very much. We'll be back in a minute. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. How good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with myself, Steve Bruce. Today we have on, we continue our our focus on um, Healthy Heart Month, which is February in the UK, Healthy Heart Month, with Selena Gore, the CEO of Women Heart, which is the sole, actually, well, obviously sole and therefore leading um, heart disease charity focused on women in the United States. So, um, Selena, let's talk about how you transitioned from your work um, in the chronic disease uh, organization with uh, into heart, Women Heart, and then specifically what the mission is at Women Heart. Because again, I know we talked about it on a production call and I thought it was a, a really unique, it was a message that I hadn't specifically heard. And I've actually, since our production call, I spoke to a number of people in the UK and I don't think it's a message necessarily that, that we hear very often in the UK. So I'm actually really interested to, for you to explain it. I'm sure our listeners would be interested too. Yeah. So I came to, to Women Heart actually not sort of unintentionally. I was living in, in London and running the GACD where we were funding research on things like cardiovascular disease in Africa and Asia, uh, in Latin America and uh, Women Heart came calling. Um, they, they, it was a recruitment call. And I had no interest. I was sort of advising them on how they might go about finding a candidate. And then through the conversations, I realized that in the research we were funding, we were finding just how problematic heart disease was right. and is. And that there are aspects of heart disease that are unique to women that make it so that their outcomes, our outcomes are actually worse than men's because of the stereotypes that we're having to fight in terms of heart disease, perhaps being more of a man's disease. Um, and women themselves not really being aware of the, the symptoms that might look different to the conventional symptoms of heart disease that we might see on in movies, for example, or in Hollywood. And so it intrigued me so much that um, I decided to move on from, from GACD and make the leap back here to the U.S. Uh, and mm-hmm. t- take take it on. 
And what was what was how was the organization or what was what was the organization doing or what was it like when you sort of came on board versus sort of what like what was it because I know I've read the story on the website which I think is yeah. really inspiring because it was actually quite a, there were three women is that right that set that's it up right. and, it, and it was that's very right. it was very personal to them they set it up because they all personally had a heart journey right it wasn't just it was right, I guess it right. wasn't a kind of a, a bureaucratic thing that someone someone got allocated some money by a government to set up something to look at heart disease in women right this was a very personal organization that's right and it was it was born out of anger really and and the the idea that there is that it's simply an injustice that the healthcare system uh and sort of society in general is not more aware of the plight of women with heart disease um and so we've been at it as an organization for we started in 1999 so we're in our 23rd year now um and when i when i started um the organization had was to be honest was going through a rough patch because it had lost a, a pretty significant funder. And I, I call myself the, the COVID CEO because, <laughs> you know, I, t- I took it on in, in June of 2019. And oh, we, wow. so we, know, we know what happened very soon after. Um, and so really what we've been focused on at the organization in the last two and a half years is as most nonprofits have had to do, re- revert our, all of our programming to, to the virtual space um, yeah. and think about how to bring along a, a community that has been so used to in-person activities. Um, so, you know, the organization has sort of retooled itself to be able to do that and, and quite mm. successfully, um, primarily because our funders and, and our community at large understand quick understood quickly that heart disease was a pretty significant risk factor in becoming uh susceptible to right. you know a covid a covid infection so yeah. um it, you know there was a lot of attention thank goodness sort of uh focused on heart disease uh and in particular not you know not just the the physical experience of, of heart disease in, relative to, to to covid but also uh, mental health as a really mm. critical component of that and isolation being, being a you know, contributor. Um, right. So we've been busy trying to sort out, sort out how we keep the, the, um, the plight of women with heart disease sort of on the radar and not get lost in, in the, you know, the, the, the noise around uh, the yeah. pandemic. And then, which I get, I imagine must be really, really hard, right? When everyone wants yeah. to talk about one thing and they don't want to sort of talk about the other, but there's, just go back to the stuff that you said a few minutes ago, which I thought was really interesting, is around what, why, why does that? And I'm, obviously, I'm playing devil's advocate here. So, sure, why does sure. that? Why does there need to be a women-specific heart movement, not-for-profit messaging, um, yeah. you know, coalition? Why is that so important that it's specifically related to women as opposed to everybody, men and women? Yeah. Well, let's go back to the origin story that you pointed out, Steve, of the three women who started Women Heart in 1999. Their, their experience, their heart journeys started with delayed diagnosis and misdiagnosis. And that story repeats itself, unfortunately, you know, time and time and time again, where women show up, I've heard so many stories of women showing up to the ER, or the A&E there in, mm-hmm. in the UK, um, yeah. you know, having a heart attack okay. and being told they're, they're to go home. Having- they're, they're right. having a heart attack and they're told to go home because, oh, it's just stress or it's a panic attack or, you know, um, you, you just need rest. 
and that would be different if they were men is that the is and that, that is would that... be different if they were men so so the the so much of what what we see is you know that that the symptoms look slightly different yeah. um so that that's one thing and so so not only are women themselves not completely aware of the differences in symptoms but often healthcare providers are not aware of the differences in symptoms and we okay. see that play out with um when you when you we look at um uh, the, the quality of life and health outcomes for men and women post heart attack. Okay. Um, women are more likely to die in the first 12 months post heart attack than men are. And so really? why is lot- that? And why is that? Well, what so, are the re- I'm sure it's multitude of reasons. And multitude of reasons, certainly. Yeah. But part of that is the delayed diagnosis, right? So we right. know in general, like if, if you, the, the longer you wait to be seen about a condition, the worse your uh, your outcomes are going to be. Right. Um, and if you are told, you know, if you, if you then present at, at, at your doctor's office or, or uh, in the emergency room um, with symptoms and told to go home, obviously that, that contributes to the delayed diagnosis. Right. So, and how, what's the, um, what's the prevention messaging? I, it, and I don't know in the U S as much as I know the UK, but the UK is like a teeny tiny little thing compared to the, the U S but like, what's the kind of, public health messaging around prevention right so i know that in the uk yeah. for example we went through a, a long period of the, the, the nhs has become as many people have increasingly more focused on preventative disease preventing yeah. what can be prevented um within the area of cardiovascular disease you know heart attacks strokes it's it was initially geared around kind of like a health check light which was you know lifestyle factors plus blood pressure to try and diagnose hypertension you know, if you were, were hypertensive, then you would go on statins because it's a very cheap right. drug. And actually, there was, I think, for a time, any man. But again, I don't know about women, so I'm interested to hear your point. But I know that any man over about 65 was almost proactively prescribed statins. There was like a period of time where that was like pushed, even though they mm-hmm. may or may not have had hypertension. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But like what's how I, I imagine in the US, it differs state to state. But what? what what is that what is that and how what is it related to women specifically i'd be really interested yeah it's a it's a really good question so in general what we say here is and i don't i don't know what the campaign was in the uk but here we say know your numbers so beyond okay. your blood pressure you want to know your cholesterol numbers right um and and you know and, and having that checked sort of on a regular basis we okay. you know i think we're moving from get your blood pressure checked once a year, which is somebody who checks my blood pressure on a regular basis. That, that just seems so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not, uh, often it's, enough. It's not enough. Um, so you should, so now I think we're moving to a place where, you know, you should have a blood pressure cuff at home yeah. and you should take that blood pressure cuff into your doctor's office when you, you know, when you have your visits to, to make sure it's calibrated appropriately and all of that. Yeah. You know, when you start seeing blood pressure cuffs that are affordable at our at our Costco, you know, here in town, yeah. th- then you start to see, OK, that's really sort of changing our view of what we can be doing at home on a, you know, on a preventive, you know, yeah. in a preventive way. Um, there is also, I think, a lot of efforts, I think, to your point about statins, um, you know, we've, we've seen some efforts in the in the drug industry to make um hypertensive meds as affordable as possible okay. um, so that they they are you know ne- you know basically pennies um, right. and and you know that 
maintaining, and we know this, maintaining um, healthy levels of blood, blood pressure is probably the, the single most important thing you can do right. to prevent, you know, a sort of more serious heart disease. Yeah. And um, how, um, and how, so for, uh, what, what kind of, are there any things, is there any specific early warning markers other than that are specifically for, for women? So a good example in men is um, erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. is a really early warning sign of cardiovascular disease. So is there anything specific for women or does it go to your point of like, this is why symptoms get missed because it, it's difficult or it's different or, you know, what? what yeah. So, so I think that the biggest thing that we, that I have heard time and time again from women who've had heart attacks uh, or, or, you know, heart failure diagnosis is that they start to feel so much fatigue that they can't, um, do the things that they were normally able to do. So say you're a runner, or even if you're not a runner, you walk every day, you know, walking up a flight of stairs, all of a sudden becomes really taxing where it used to not become taxing that, that level of fatigue, you know, and and a lot, and you can imagine a lot of people will just sort of chalk that up to, Oh, I just, I'm just exhausted or I've just, could be anything. No, it's a holidays or, you know, whatever. Work's really stressful. My kids are really difficult. I haven't been sleeping, you know, all of these things there's an endless amount number of explanations as to why you might not be able to walk up a flight of stairs. But the point is that, you know, when you go from one, um, one level of, of activity to a different level of activity, that is worth talking to your um, doctor about. That's a really important marker that I think, again, goes sort of un you know, unchecked. Um, Mm. And it's in, and part of why there's a delay, I think, in, in getting treatment, you know, on time is because women will either say, oh, it's nothing. Or as we've heard from many women, I don't have time. Right. I don't have time. I, got too much I don't on. have time for disease. I don't have right. time to worry. You know, I've got, mm-hmm. I'm taking care of so many other people. And so right. what ends up happening is they, they don't take care of themselves. Wow. That's uh, yeah, I can see that. I can see that happening. And so how does women heart come into the picture to try and help women? Because you you really try and help people, as you say, across the journey, you know, from from right from the beginning through to post having potentially heart disease or developing it or however you want to sort yeah. of phrase it. So what 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 is the role that the heart women heart plays? So I'm going to start with our core volunteers and we call them our women heart champions. These are women who have gone through you know, their, their heart journeys, you know, either having had a heart attack, or having had a pretty significant, uh, you know, intervention, whether it's a, you know, open heart surgery, or having a, a diagnosis of heart failure, you know, all very serious, uh, s- serious uh, diagnoses. And they decide after going through their heart genders that they want to help other women not go through their those journeys alone. And we send them to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. They get trained up. So it's, it's more than just, you know, sign up and, you know, you're a volunteer with Women Heart. It is you, fine. You want to help other women. We are going to send you through a pretty rigorous training. They then go back into their communities and they do a number of things. They are community educators to get the message out of prevention to say, I, you know, I myself experienced heart disease. I had a heart attack. I want you to not experience the same thing. These are the things that you can do to empower yourself to, to, to make, you know, healthy choices. Um, We also have women who are leaders of support groups, um, knowing that, you know, to, to have, to have gone through the heart disease experience with others who are going through the same thing in, 
vastly improves their mental health because the feeling of loneliness, the feeling of, in some cases, the feelings of guilt and shame of having heart disease were right. overcome by being able to say, oh, you had the same thing, you know, let's, let's share our experiences. Do you, do you think that like, for, this is your, I know this is going to be a massive generalization, so I'm just going to apologize for that <laughs> up front. But do you believe that women on the whole feel more shame and stigma about having heart disease than men do? Yes. From a society Hands or down. Okay. Absolutely. Because then, you know, what, what ends up happening is they have heart disease and what they feel really bad about is then not being able to care for the people that they have been caring for their right. kids, their husbands, their, their family members, their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's sort of like, Oh, if only if I took better care of myself, I wouldn't have, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be in this position to not be there for right. others. Um, I think it's a little different in, in men because then, you know, you have, it ends up, you know, let's say in a sort of a conventional family, you then have the spouse so that, you know, your, your wife or whatever, yeah. sort of care for you. And that, and that's very much in their role, right? That's, yeah. that's within their role. And I mean, look, I mean, you know, cultures full of the kind of, you know, trope of sort of the, you know, late to uh, middle age to late middle age and drinks beer and you know likes likes a steak and you know that's kind of you know and it's like oh yeah he's got a heart problem dodgy ticker you know ha 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 type of Uh you know it is what you know yeah yeah it's certainly not stigmatized in in any way shape or form right yeah and do we I mean how how often do we see a woman having a heart attack in Hollywood movies I would say never never never. no it's just not part of our sort of you know thought process when we think yeah like when 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 someone dies in, when a woman dies in a hollywood movie it's generally cancer right or an accident that's i'm right. guessing that's right yeah but but it's always the man clutching the chest sort of keeling over right ha- yeah. you know whatever exercising or just having eaten a steak or what whatever you know whatever convention that you know might might be and and how how do you because obviously Heart disease, heart disease is a problem for everybody, right? By definition, it's the biggest That's killer right. of everyone. How, how right. do you sort of carve out that niche without being seen to sort of say, like, I don't know, without, how do you get the attention on the, the female woman sort of aspect of it, at, but not at the expense of saying, well, it's more important than the thing that men are dying from. Do you see what I mean? Like, how do you, I so do. it's quite a difficult tightrope to tread, right? I do. So what we say, I mean, and, and, and how we walk that tightrope, which I, I agree, it, it definitely is, it can be fraught, um, is to say there should be sort of system, systematic ways to assess for heart disease, or for heart attack. Yeah, no matter yeah. who you are, you walk in, this yeah. is what you should get. This is the standard. If somebody is complaining of, you know, thinking they might have a heart attack when you walk into the ER, these are the, the these are the standard tests you should is be that, And that doesn't happen. Period. Like that, that just doesn't happen. That, is, that doesn't well, exist. It or it kind of happens doesn't you know depends exactly. it's not it's not consistent it's certainly right. not consistent right. okay right okay that makes sense so look it's sort of like the same let's just have the same rules for everyone because then you exactly. get you'll catch everyone you catch it kind of. exactly right. that makes exactly. sense yeah cool well look i want to come back we're going to take another quick break but after that i want to return just to make sure we cover off all of the mission and everything that Women Hearts doing, and then get tap into kind of your vast experience around the humanitarian side of things to give some advice and things like that to the people that are listening. So I think that that's, that's truly invaluable. So we will be back in a couple of minutes.
The station that makes you feel good. Galar Light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. The station that makes you feel good. Hello, and welcome back to the final part of our um, of this week's Health Tech Hour. Sorry, this week's Health Tech Hour with Selena Gore, CEO of Women Heart, um, and me, Steve Roost. So, Selena, before the break, we were just covering over the mission um, of Women Heart, and we were talking about your Women Heart champions who help other women on their journeys. We were talking about some of the things that you're pushing for um, in terms of, I guess, policy changes, right, in terms of better prevention. What other kind of, because I guess that those are two different ends of the spectrum, aren't they, which is helping individual people with their own specific journey, but then trying to affect large-scale change. And is that, do you think that that strategy is sort of something that's come from your time working on the other side of the coin, if you like, trying to lobby governments and affect it to see you kind of, is it that you, in order to make a real impact, you have to be operating at both ends of the spectrum, the individual end and the kind of governmental policy end? Yeah. So thank goodness the organization has been at it from, from the very beginning, you know, this, this idea that you've got to work at multiple levels of society to have change. Um, But what I think is, um, maybe, you know, a perspective that I brought in from my experiences into Women Hard is that we need to push for our organization to be really addressing and tackling heart disease in the communities at greatest risk. So as opposed to sort of waiting for women to come to Women Heart because they're ready or they've had a heart attack, have a heart, they've had a heart attack. We need to be looking at the risk map of the U.S., to see where are where are women having heart attacks? Where are women suffering from hypertension? And we need to figure out how to grow our organization in those particular areas so that the needs are, are being met um, right. of, of women who are most vulnerable. The other thing I want to throw into the mix here, because obviously this is unique to, to women, is that the pregnancy journey, right? The, okay. the maternity journey is a journey that is fraught in terms of heart disease. So when okay. we talk about high levels of maternal mortality, and unfortunately, the U.S. has the highest level of maternal mortality of any high-income country in the yeah, world. Yeah, I, I knew that. Sadly. Yeah, that's that was. I saw that the other day, actually. And so, and but they're dying because of heart disease. Okay, uh, so just how, how does that play out, and what does that mean? That, that, yeah, what does that, yeah, it's a good question. So, so generally speaking, there are things that 
uh, conditions or, or states that arise while somebody, while a woman is pregnant. Preeclampsia is one of yep. the most common ones, right? So yep. it's for your audience that preeclampsia is, is the um, increase of blood pressure during pregnancy. And what, what again, is, is not systematic ac- across our healthcare system here in the U.S., is to inform women that if you have suffered from preeclampsia, your risk for heart disease and heart attack after, you know, after you've had the baby mm. goes up immensely. Right? Is that right? And I didn't know that. Absolutely. I didn't know. I didn't know that. It increases oh, wow. your, so, so, you know, again, sort of not, not giving full information mm. to women during pregnancy, because I, I think so much of, I mean, obviously it's, there's a lot of, emotional highs, you know, good and bad during, during pregnancy and during childbirth, mm. that then once you have the baby, you sort of think, I think that you leave behind the pregnancy experience. But what the reality is that so much of what happens during pregnancy stays with your body, including, mm-hmm. including hypertension, and in some cases, gestational diabetes. And we know that the relationship between diabetes and hypertension or diabetes and heart disease is, is also really important to, to look at. Yeah. And so, uh, yes. And yes. So, yes, I know. And um, the, the crossover between those two, I think it's I read somewhere that 80 percent of people with type 2 diabetes. This was people, not specifically women, but people, 80 percent of people with type 2 diabetes will die of cardiovascular disease. Exactly. So I, I've, we've speak, spoken to many diabetologists here in, in the U.S. and they say when we treat somebody with diabetes, we're treating their heart disease. Right. And do they screen them? Because obviously type 2 diabetes will kick in earlier than well potentially earlier because they'll go through the pre-diabetic stage then they'll move on to full-blown type 2 diabetes and then they might have some kind of cardiovascular event so is how at the moment are they screening for cardiovascular issues as part of that journey or is it not are they not really the two sides aren't really talking to each other or how does that they are no i mean i I think i think you know like i said the the folks who are looking squarely at diabetes know that they're treating heart disease because as you say, that's what, that's what people with diabetes will die of chances are, but, but you also want to do the other thing, right? So where if, if somebody is presenting with heart disease, you know, high levels of of blood pressure, for example, you want to make sure that they're, you know, maintaining a a good diet and exercise and all that. So as to prevent them from, from um, developing diabetes on top of, you know, the challenges that so, they already face. So it's, yeah. it happens in both, in both directions. And so to return to a point you made, one of the things that, that women heart do is promoting healthy choices. Your, your, your champions promote healthy yeah, choices yeah. specifically you mentioned it might, this might not be the case, but is it difficult? Is it more difficult? Is there a socioeconomic factor here around making those healthy choices? Is it in the United States or in certain parts of the country or in certain communities, is it harder to make those healthy choices for certain reasons or is it, is that not relevant? It's not, that's not. No, it's absolutely relevant. It's absolutely real. I mean, you know, when we think about where heart disease is, uh, is endemic, you know, we have to look at, are there places to exercise? Uh, mm-hmm. Are there, are, do they live in food deserts so that they can actually access healthy, healthy um, fruits and vegetables, for example. Um, yeah. And this happens to be the case so that when and we uh, map those, those risk factors, we're looking at social determinants of health, you know, things like that. So for our listeners benefit, could you just explain the term food desert? Because Absolutely. it's not necessarily one that I don't think it's really it's not come into it, it's been it gets mentioned a bit in the in the UK, but it only on reporting on US stuff. So I think it's it's something that a lot of our UK listeners won't really be 
aware of? Aware of, sure. Yeah. So a food desert is if you live in a place where you cannot, you know, reasonably walk to uh, or or take public transportation to a store that sells fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, healthy healthy options essentially. Right. Um, you know, instead of sort of your, your corner store that might only have, you know, fried foods or, or, or crisps and sodas okay. and that kind of thing. Okay. And that's a real problem in the US, isn't it? That's not like a one-off. That's something that is pretty common, is it? it it's, it's, it's very common in, in places like, um, you know, sort of the urban, the urban setting um, where okay. you might have, you know, higher levels of, low-income housing or, uh, you know, and, and obviously there are efforts like in, in the nonprofit space to have, let's say, mobile uh, um, farmer's markets right. or, uh, you know, to turn sort of church yards into, you know, into farmer's markets, that, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but sort of, you know, if, if we just sort of let, you know, capitalism drive, what we're seeing is that we end up with these food deserts. And is that, is there... Um... To, to counteract that, is that a policy? Is that like a state level, federal level policy issue? Or what, how, how does that sort of, obviously, yes, on the other end of the spectrum, yes, you can do these food banks and yes, you can do the farmer's markets and things like that. But yeah. how do you address the sort of desertification? If you Where like, does it happen? Yeah. Kind of like, how do you, how do you sort of step in on that? Yeah, I, I think where I see the most effective interventions happening are at the city level. Okay. Um, you know, we we have you know so many layers of government here, um, and at the city level, seems to be the place that is w- the mayors really are are the ones that are taking I think the the most proactive steps um, to improving access essentially. Because right. it must be very frustrating, I imagine, to be told you need to make healthy choices, and then you're like, well, how do I? What do you want me to do here? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how, how, A, how do you even get it? And then if you can get it, I don't want to, you know, it, it, we, we often use, unfortunately, McDonald's as the example of, you know, right. bad parenting, you're going to feed your kids happy meals, you should be feeding them broccoli. Uh, you know, when, when it costs the same to buy, you know, three happy meals for your kids, as it does to buy, you know, a head of broccoli in, in some places, because it's right. so rare to be able to access, um, right. access fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. Right. So the price, because they're so, the, the supply is so low, the price yeah, is actually so higher. Yeah, so behavioral right. economics takes over. Yeah. Well, and like you've got to feed three children, right? So like calories is the calorie, you can, you're going exactly. to go with the calorie option. Exactly. Like, yeah. I mean, oh my goodness. Yeah. That's, that sounds very, that sounds very tricky. Um, but like you said, it seems like it's obviously people are aware and people are working on it, not just yourselves, but other people, which, 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 which is great. Um, so look, we've got another, we've got about sort of, you know, eight, nine minutes left on the show. So I want to kind of cover a couple of things. The first is, what does the next sort of 12, 24 months look like for Women Heart? Obviously, you were, you called yourself the pandemic CEO. We're yeah. now out of the pandemic CEO. We're not we're now <clears throat> out of the pandemic. And so does yeah. that change? are you moving up through the gears in some way or are you changing a bit of strategy in some way? Yeah, so we just started to implement a new three-year strategy this this year in January, and our focus is two things: growth and and reach. Um, we we love what we do. We think it's really important. Our champions are amazing and committed and passionate, but we just want to be out there more. Um, right. And so our 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 first focus on growth is to is to be smart about 
reintegrating in-person activity, but in a way that um, enables the virtual work to continue in a, in a meaningful and strong way. Yeah. You know, I think that's what all of us are doing is, you know, for, for those of us running nonprofits is figuring out what the right combination is of, of the virtual and the in-person uh, work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second is reach, sort of doing things like this and, you know, getting, getting our, the word out about why it's really important to focus on, on heart disease in women. Yeah. And that, you know, and that by, you know, sort of addressing that you also address, you know, I think other issues of, um, you know, differences in outcomes. Good. my dog. No, don't worry. I look, it's good to have a supporter. I like it. He's clearly passionate. That's good. Um, so what, um, you know, like, like I said, we were going to talk about, obviously the, so I, I know this person, so my sister works in the international development space. And it was so hard for her to get into that space, you know, and it's a very like the humanitarian international development NGO non-for-profit space is hugely competitive to get into. And so what kind of advice would you have to, to anyone that's listening that, that may be in that space or looking to get into that space? Because I think it's a, you've had a very unique and very um, exciting career in that space. So I think it would be, be remiss of us to not try and take um, advantage of that, so to speak, in a, in a nice way. Yeah, you know, I I had to like bring myself back to having finished uni and thinking, how the heck do I do this? You know, I thought right. like the Peace Corps route, the you know what 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 avenues do I take? And I think the good news is that the UN's got an incredible number of opportunities. There is the UNV UN Volunteers, which is a, a really good program to to look into, um, and that just sort of sends out you know qualified folks to different parts of the world. Um, you know, you don't, you're not going to, in the, in the early stages of, of being in international development, you're not going to do it for the money because the money's no, not there. Well, lot, no, no, not at all. You've got to be prepared. It seems like to do a bit like, you know, pro bono. Even. Yes. There's sort of internships and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, for those who are really adventurous, I would say the best strategy is to pick a country and go. Okay. Um, because what often ends up happening, and I'll, and I'll speak from my experiences in Angola, what ends up happening is that there are jobs, sort of short-term contractual jobs that come up on a regular basis. Okay. And if you're in Angola and you're trying to get somebody who's qualified to do, let's say, communications or epidemiology or whatever, yeah. it takes so much to get somebody in country that okay. if you are in country... And right. you, you know, you say, here's my CV, here's the things I can do. They'll snap yeah. you up just like that. Right. So it's sort of like, are you prepared to show the hustle of just going out to a country yes. and, you know, floating around a little bit, networking a little bit, making That's sure right. that when, when the jobs come up, you're like, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I could do exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. And the, wow. the, 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 the community of international development folks, oh. what, you know, when you are in country is very small. So the okay. networking happens like lightning and, right. you know, you're, you're talking to, you know, folks that are working at USAID or DFID or whatever in country right. very, very quickly. Okay. And because I imagine it must be extremely difficult, sort of like you said, where it's going to be a lot more difficult to pull someone over from the US or from the UK or from the EU to Angola than it is to hire somebody locally. That's right. That's right. That's what you want to do. That's why spouses and 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 those kinds of folks got jobs pretty easily um, right. because you know you're there right and you you right. you're you're following you know you're a trailing spouse and 
Okay. You're available. And you, well, yeah, and, and often often trailing spouses are extremely well qualified, you know, in, in various exactly. different things. Okay, exactly. that's really interesting. Yeah. I've never sort of considered it that way. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. what about if if someone's interested in the sort of the the, the not-for-profit space? Like, is that a route that you would, I guess you would clearly recommend it to, to people, but do you, you know, is it suited for some people and not for other people? Like, what, what type so. of thing would you, what would you say there? Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I've worked in the private sector and, and obviously now work work in the nonprofit space. And one thing that I would just, just a caution for anyone interested in working in the, in the, in the public sector and in the nonprofit sector is that it's a lot more tricky than the private sector In the private Mm -hmm. sector, you have a pretty singular lever of incentive, pay more money, right? It's money, money talks. Yeah. Um, in the public sector, in the nonprofit sector, you don't really, there's so many different motivators. Mm-hmm. You know, you might be mission driven, you might be, you know, you might be loyal to your parents and, you know, you want to make sure that no one else gets cancer. You, you right. mean there's, and so it's a lot more difficult to navigate that space um, because you have, you know, so many different motivations for, for doing, doing the work. Um, but for those who are, you know, ready for that, it's, it's an incredibly fulfilling way to, um, to spend your, your professional life. Good. Now, just to end on this, because we've only got a few minutes left, but just to end, if, if, if there are any women listening to this who are concerned about their heart health, what would you recommend that they do? I would say go to your doctor, um, speak to them about your concerns, make sure you're getting your blood pressure checked on a regular basis, um, you know, buy a, buy a cuff. Um, you know, monitor your monitor your blood pressure at home, um, and share those readings with your doctor. Um, you know that that's going to be that's going to go a long way towards helping you. Um, oh, and the other big thing before I forget is know your heart history and know your family's heart history. I think okay. so many people are surprised, are caught off guard by the fact that they have uh, heart disease in their in their families and didn't really know it. Great. That all makes sense. So on that note, Selena, we've come to the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a really fantastic show. Um, thanks for joining from Washington, D.C., where, as we said, we like to talk about ourselves as a global show. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week. So Selena Gore, CEO of Women Heart, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. <sighs> I've been dreaming Friendly faces I've got so much time To kill Just imagine Shine